Hi, thank you for listening to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church. Here at FBC, it's our mission to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus Christ, and we hope that this message helps you continue to grow in your faith. This audio is property of First Baptist Church, but feel free to give away copies of this message in the hopes that others will be impacted by what they hear. For more information about FBC, or if you want to stay connected with us, visit our website at fbclloyd.ca or look us up on Facebook and Instagram. Thanks, and enjoy the latest from FBC. So last week, we started a series on the Sermon of the Mount, and um, we're going to be in this series now until June again, uh, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. Is uh, Ryan had suggested it. When he suggested it, I said, well, this is, that's a great idea. We should dive in and do this. And I'm, as I start to look into it, and as I start to, to uh, prepare for some of the messages coming up, I was just more and more convinced that this is going to be so good. And um, I, I don't know, maybe if you don't uh, take my endorsement at, uh, you know, sort of straight off, if you have, that, have a little trouble just kind of adopting that, let me tell you what D.A. Carson says. He writes, I am deeply convinced that the Church of Christ needs to study the Sermon on the Mount again and again. If you're not familiar who D.A. Carson is, uh, Ryan referenced him a couple weeks back as the head of the Gospel Coalition. Uh, Some of you might recognize him as the general editor of the Zondervan Study Bible, Um, and uh, as a a theologian of note uh, in our world today. He's still alive and uh, still continuing to be uh, a prolific writer. I don't know how many books he's written. I've never met him personally, but I have had an encounter with him through a book that I had to do in one of my earliest assignments for my master's. And um, um, this book was called Exegetical Fallacies. And um, we had to take a look at this as as, uh, uh, an an assignment. Examine all these fallacies that Dr. Carson writes about. There's over 50 of them. uh, What's a little bit intimidating is he says it's not an exhaustive list. Um, And we were to see where we can fall into traps in trying to, to preach and to present the word and where we can run into difficulties or trouble in misrepresenting God's word. And so we had to take a look at this. Thirteen, at least thirteen, of these fallacies that we can stumble into are related to translation, related to the language. And so Dr. Carson in his book would take an example, he would write out the Hebrew, and then he would translate the Hebrew... And then he would give us an explanation as to where the problem lay. And, and then he'd go on to another example. And so he, then he would write out the Greek. And so he'd write out the Greek. So I'm trying to read the Greek. And then, and then he would give us the translation. And then he would point out the problem that we could stumble into here. And so as he's writing Hebrew and Greek and translating and so on and so forth, I was a little bit disconcerted to find that he referred to this book as a book for laymen. And I thought to myself, I sure don't want to see the book for academics. It's crazy. I don't know how long it took me to try and work through some of the 
issues that he was presenting there. Anyway, so on Dr. Carson's recommendation then, I hope that you're looking forward to this series. But what's more, Dr. Carson goes on. He says, the more I read these three chapters, the more I am both drawn to them and shamed by them. Their brilliant light draws me like a moth to a spotlight, but the light is so bright that it sears and burns. No room is left for forms of piety which are nothing more than veneer and sham. Perfection is demanded. Jesus says, be perfect as your Father, your Heavenly Father is perfect. As I was reading that from Dr. Carson, I was thinking to myself that maybe, hopefully, slowly, I'm beginning to identify more and more with his perspective. God's standard is perfection. So that must be my goal. There's nowhere where good is good enough with God. And as Jesus lays out then, what his standard looks like. And I read it and I see it. It burns and it sears me as I recognize how far I am from his standard. How far I am from this goal that he asks, that he requires of me. And how much it hurts as I try to allow the Holy Spirit to move me closer to that goal. As I try and allow Him into my life, into my heart, to change me. I hope that as we go through this series, that God will provoke in all of us a similar response to that of Dr. Carson. That God will draw us by His Spirit to Himself through His Word, just like a moth to the light. And that as we lend ourselves to that, as we lean into that, that he will refine us by the intensity of his word. Now, the section that we're in this morning is a section on the Beatitudes. And some of you will remember uh, that we have delved into this previously in a series a while back that we called, Are You Kidding Me? As we looked at the Beatitudes specifically. And so this morning, as we come to verses 6 to 12, this is going to be more of a survey. We're going to gloss over them relatively quickly. Try and point out a few thoughts on each of them as we go. But if you would like more detail, I would refer you back to that series. And for the first three Beatitudes, I would refer you back to last week where Ryan gave an excellent message on verses 1 to 5. Next week, just so that you can be excited about that, um, Pastor Gord's going to be coming, and he's going to be giving us uh, a walkthrough, helping us with a walkthrough, verses 13 to 16. So, uh, yeah, be here for that. That's going to be awesome. Before we go any further, one more time, would you just bow with me, and uh, let's pray and ask God to come and, and help us uh, to move closer to him this morning. Father, again, I just pray that by your Spirit that you would come, that you would be here, that you would be at work, in ways that would draw us to your light, that you would elicit from us 
a response to you today that would be in keeping with what your Son is asking of us. That you would burn and that you would sear away the parts of ourselves that are not like you, that are not in keeping with who you are and the way that you desire us to live. And that as you do, that you would make us into a better testimony for you. To the world around us. All for the sake of your Son. And what he has done for us. And so now I pray these things, Father, in his name. Amen. All right. As we come to this section of Scripture called the the Sermon on the Mount, it serves us well to go back just a few verses to chapter 4, verse 17. You could also look at chapter 4, verse 23, where we see that Christ is beginning His ministry. And He says this as He begins to preach. Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven has come near. So this morning as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we need to recognize that the kingdom of God is the theme that is running throughout this Sermon on the Mount. That Christ hasn't just arrived and is tweeting out some poignant, pithy little sayings. He's not just giving his, us his thoughts and ideas, but rather that He is presenting to us the kingdom of God, and giving us wisdom and insight into what that looks like. He is unpacking for us what the kingdom of God is all about in these verses. And what's more, he's sharing with us about what it entails to be a part of the kingdom of God. So he's very intentional in what he's up to. He's very intentional in what he's going about And with that then as a backdrop, let's carry on and go to verse 6. Verse 6, Matthew 5, verse 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hungering and thirsting after righteousness should be the progression for all of us that are now in tune with the first three Beatitudes. This should be the next step for us as we come to recognize our dependence on God. For the last time, I'll reference Dr. Carson here this morning. From his study of Scripture, Carson has come to define righteousness as this, a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. So in other words, what Dr. Carson is proposing or presenting here is that the summation of righteousness is a pattern of life in conformity to God's will. So then, as we look at the first three Beatitudes, as we recognize our spiritual bankruptcy, as we mourn and repent of our sin that has caused it, and as we come meekly then before God, It follows that we would then hunger and now hunger and thirst to live lives completely submitted to the will of God. 
Two thoughts here. First, how often is that the case for you and I today? How often is it that we wake up and can articulate our desire as to live a life completely submitted to God today? I think that even in following quote-unquote God, we so often have our own agendas. We hunger after justice. Now that's an attribute of God. So I'm good in that. We thirst for wisdom. I don't want to look stupid, so I'll thirst for wisdom. That's good. That's an attribute of God. God says, calls me to ask Him for wisdom. We desire spiritual power and effectiveness. We want our lives to be significant. And so we desire from God spiritual effectiveness and power in our lives. Etc., etc., etc. Fill in the blanks as you know them to be in your life. And none of these things are bad. Don't get me wrong. They're good things. But the question remains, do we hunger and thirst to live lives simply and subordinately in accordance to the will of God? Second, more than not, I think as I look around at my life and as I look around at the church in general, I think we're predisposed to try and accomplish our righteousness. We want to be righteous. And so with that in mind, then we look at our lives and we examine ourselves to see, that, see if our actions and our deeds are righteous. If we're acting righteously. And as if we conclude that we are, then we decide that we have arrived that we have somehow managed to be righteous, that we have achieved righteousness. But throughout Scripture, and here specifically, Christ tells us that we do not accomplish righteousness. We don't achieve it. Rather, as we hunger and thirst for it, then we will be filled by God with it. That it will be accounted to us as we submit our lives to Him and follow Him. This morning, don't ever forget that we cannot accomplish righteousness in and of ourselves and for ourselves. It can only come through God Himself. For there's no one righteous, no, not one, He says of us. Our aim this morning should be to hunger and thirst for it in our lives. That we would desire to trust and follow God simply and humbly as He directs us however and wherever that we're to go according to His will. And that as we do then, that then 
we will be filled with righteousness from Him. Verses 7, 8, and 9 form a trio of Beatitudes that begin to shift us away from our perspective and our relationship to God, our dependence on Him towards how we should live our lives in response to the world around us, to others around us. And so quickly, let's carry on. Verse 7, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy, Christ says. What is being referred to here is not just those who perform random acts of mercy, but rather, this refers to those who are inclined and disposed to exercise mercy ongoingly in their lives. Those that are predisposed to look around at the people that they encounter and see people in mercy and respond, in, in misery and respond. Therefore, the mercy full, those that are full of mercy and pouring it out to those around them. We are to be people that look out for the needy and those in misery and we're to extend mercy to them. Specifically, we're to help them in their misery, which is to come alongside them and help them bear up under whatever the circumstances, stresses, weights, and burdens that they're having to bear. And what's more, that we're to come alongside them and wherever possible, however possible, to whatever extent it's possible for us, we're to help them out of their misery so that they don't have to bear it longer. But it doesn't just end here. At the same time, Christ is calling us to extend mercy to those that make our experience miserable as well. And you know what I'm talking about. You've had those experiences where there's been someone in your world that makes your life miserable. That does something that you do not agree with, that you do not like and enjoy. Might be a teacher. I had a few of those. It might be a preacher. It might be a boss. And for whatever reason, they just make your life difficult. Christ is calling us to extend them mercy. That we would try to understand, put ourselves in their shoes, recognize what might be causing that. Extending them the benefit of the doubt when we can't tell, when we don't know. And extend them mercy. And, Christ says, that as we do, as we are merciful, then mercy will be extended to us. Again, always with the backdrop of recognizing that what He has done for us is undeserved. We did nothing to deserve it. But He has extended us mercy and we are to do the same for others. Verse 8, carrying on. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Here we need to understand that the heart is the center of man. We need to understand the heart as our innermost being. The center of our lives. From which come all of our desires, our loves, our intentions, our motivations. 
As we think of the heart, we recognize that if left unchecked, the heart can run amok very quickly. That it can take us into all manner of evil. Matthew 15 verses 18 and 19 say, But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So as we come to this beatitude, where God calls us, where Christ calls us to be pure in heart, we need to recognize this morning that He is not calling us to just be pure in our thoughts and in our deeds, but to be pure in our hearts. Pure at our core. That we can't just behavior modify ourselves and change our actions, but rather we have to change our being. That by His help, through the Spirit, that we come to Him and have Him change us and engage with Him and to have Him change us in our heart of hearts. That our motives would change. That our intentions would change. That our loves would change to come in line and be in keeping with who He is and what He's about. And Christ says that our reward for that, our blessing in that, is that we will see God. Which is to say that we can see Him better now as we lean into Him today. As we lean into God, as we try and participate with Him, as we lend ourselves to what He is asking of us and participate with Him in that, then we get a better glimpse of who God is that we can see Him more clearly. He becomes more real to us, more tangible to us. We understand Him better. We know Him more now and going forward. But what's more, Jesus says, ultimately and fully one day in heaven, we will see Him face to face as His people. What an encouragement today. What a reward today that we might be able to see one day God Almighty, our Father. Verse 9. We have to to boogie. I'll do my best. It's hard when you blubber to boogie. Okay. All right. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. To be a peacemaker, obviously, requires acting in situations or scenarios where there is conflict or turmoil or strife. It's hard to be a peacemaker when everything's peaceful. So, as it comes to this verse, I think that we tend to think of peacemakers as those who are acting as third parties to help navigate disputes between others. And this is definitely part of what we need to understand here. Absolutely. You and I need to be attuned to that. Look around. See where we can be at work to harmonize things. Bring harmony to situations, issues, people. But it goes beyond that this morning. As John Nolan puts it in his commentary, it also applies to us seeking peace in our own personal or corporate situations. 
In other words, that we are to try and find ways to preempt threats to peace in ourselves, in our circumstances, and that we're to cultivate peace in all our own experiences too, before we can become disruptors of the peace ourselves. That it's not just in others that we need to look and pay attention, but that it is in ourselves as well, our own actions, our own approaches, our own attitudes. The reward here is that we will be recognized by God as His children. That as we share in this characteristic of Him, of being a peacemaker, that then God will recognize us as His kids. That He will see our identity in Him and recognize us as His own. How amazing is that? Verse 10, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And here we see the Beatitudes come full circle as we return again to another promise of the kingdom of heaven for you and I. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. This last beatitude closes off by saying that we will be blessed when we are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So quickly this morning from this, we need to understand that as we pursue righteousness, as we live lives as God calls us to, that we should expect to suffer some persecution. I'm sure you've heard this before, but but bears saying again, if there's no persecution in our lives, can that be an indication that there is no display of righteousness in my life either? It's a convicting thought. That if I'm skating through life today, not ever being mocked by someone for the stand that I take, and not looking at something and not laughing at a joke and not participating in this little activity where we can kind of circumvent some of the rules or the requirements at work or wherever. If I'm not experiencing someone pushing back in my life about that, that perhaps they can't see anything as to what God is asking me to be. That they're not finding me a display of righteousness as God calls us to? It's a sobering question and one that we need to continue to ask ourselves day by day. But here we find that Jesus isn't done with this last beatitude yet. He carries on into verse 11 and 12. And here, note a couple of things. First of all, he moves now from a backward glance, if you will, at these other Beatitudes to a forward glance, a forward-looking focus in verses 11 and 12. And he also moves from the third person to the second person as he begins to specifically now address those in the crowd that, are, that have claimed allegiance to him. He's speaking to those who have chosen now specifically to align themselves and identify with him. And he speaks to them very directly. 
And just as he speaks to them now, he speaks to you and I today. Where are you today? Have you aligned yourself with Jesus Christ? Do you call yourself a follower of him? If so, then he speaks to you directly today. He speaks to me directly today. Verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Notice here. Persecuted in verse 10 because of righteousness. Sorry, persecuted because of righteousness, which he says in verse 10, becomes persecution because of me in verse 11. Remember, We talked earlier that the theme of Jesus' teaching is the kingdom of God. That it has come near. So here we see that Christ is identifying himself with the kingdom of God. The nearness of the kingdom of God is in Jesus. Himself. Not just his teaching, but in him. Himself. And then what's more. Jesus is beginning to articulate that our participation in the kingdom of God is through Him. He is presenting Himself now as the model and the example of the kingdom of God. That He Himself is the model and the example of the righteousness that He is calling us to. This righteousness that God is asking of us is identified in Christ Himself. Jesus goes on later in Scripture to say that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. This morning we need to recognize and understand that we cannot accomplish righteousness on our own. And that there is no other place to find righteousness than in Jesus Christ Himself. That the righteousness that Christ or that God demands is in Christ alone. And therefore, then we need to place our trust in Him and follow Him. And His righteousness, as we do that, as we trust Him and as we follow Him, then His righteousness will be accounted to us as our righteousness and we will become a part of the kingdom of God. Not quite done. Jesus says this in verse 12, Rejoice and be glad now. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven when you encounter this persecution. When you persevere for my sake, great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The implication is that the prophets who everyone would have understood and known had been definitely persecuted. The prophets were in line for a great reward. So in short, Jesus says that as we suffer on account of Him, as we suffer verbal abuse, as we suffer persecution, as we suffer defamation of our characters. It puts us in the company of the prophets. And that's lofty company indeed. 
when it comes to the sake of Christ. And therefore then, like the prophets, we will qualify for the re- this great reward, which is specifically a place with God in heaven, in his kingdom. So church family, as you encounter persecution this morning, be reminded by Christ today, wear it like a badge of honor, my friends, because great is your reward. One day, you will be with God as a part of His kingdom in heaven. Let's pray. Father, this morning, once more, Father, I pray that You would speak to us and that we would hear You today, that we would be people with ears to hear, eyes to see, and that beyond that, then that we would be people that act, that we would, by Your Spirit, as You draw us and as You enable us, as you empower us, that we would change. That we would come to be models for you. That we would exemplify now to the world around us the righteousness that you've exemplified for us in your Son. And I pray this, Father, all in Christ's name and for his sake alone. Amen.